Just had a really fun interview with Phil Scalo, the vice chair of ACA. We went all over the place as an attorney turned CEO, gets into long-term care and advocate for long-term care at the national level. I really appreciate kind of his vulnerability and talking about what influences him. And you can hear in his voice and see in his smile how passionate he is about culture and how he's learned from sports and athleticism as a father and as a leader. Hope you appreciate this episode as much as I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes Live by Experience Care. My name is Peter Murphy-Lewis. I'm your host. Today, I'm talking to Phil Scalo. He's the chairman at Bartley Healthcare. I'm excited to talk to him for a number of different reasons, and he's also the vice chair of American Healthcare Association. Phil, welcome to the program. Well, it's great to be here, Peter. I've had the opportunity to see some of your interviews, and I'm excited to be one of your subjects. Anyone who's ever listened to this podcast, Phil, knows that I'm severely dyslexic and English is not my strong suit. Did I get the pronunciation of your last name correctly this time? Yes, you did. All right, Phil, I'm going to go all over the place and jump around, but I want to start off with what's your role right now at ACA? What are you all focused on? What's the vice chair looking at in terms of emails, phone calls, committees? Yeah, it's a big list. Well, as vice chair, it's sort of like being a vice president. You have a very broad portfolio and sometimes nothing to do from that portfolio. Depends on what the chair and what the president of the association want to give you. But basically, from my perspective, I stay up with what's going on. I try to focus on what's next, what's happening now. I do serve on the political cabinet of AHCA. And with the recent election, that's caused us some focus in a different way because there's a lot of surprises from what the experts thought. And right now, I think what we're focusing on is winding down a year and getting ready for the new year. And lame duck, we're looking to try to get some support from Congress to get the attention of CMS on this minimum staffing bill regulation that they're proposing. It's a problem for a lot of operators, especially independent owners, who I am one, because if you mandate staffing that doesn't exist and you don't pay for it, It's a sure road to catastrophe for more facilities either closing or facilities being limited in what admissions they can take, therefore limiting access, which is a significant problem as the pool of people who need our services grows. We need to be able to be available to provide that quality of service that we've done for so many years. Bill, just to give a little bit of background. Tell me how long you've been involved. Maybe I shouldn't say interested, but I'm guessing if you're vice chair at some way, you have to be interested. Otherwise, you wouldn't take that thankless job. How long have you been working at advocacy at the national level? Well, I started about 10, 12 years ago when I was asked by the then chair, Bob Van Dyke, who's also from New Jersey, if I'd be interested in joining the Independent Owners Council. And I did that. And I guess through a series of things, I ultimately became the chair of that council. I then ran for the board seat as the independent owner. I was asked to be on the executive committee. I did a secretary treasurer, and now I'm vice chair. And somebody asked me, how do you do all of that? And I said, well, I'm interested in what's going on. I show up. I have a passion for what I do. And I don't say no very easily when people ask me to help. Being an independent owner, does that make you a very small minority? And is it harder to get your voice across? Or are there enough 
common denominators and shared interests, that that's not a tough job. Well, it's always a tough job to get the attention of regulators and government as to what we really do. But independent owners make up just about half of the ownership of the members of American Healthcare Association. There's about 14,000 facilities and independent owners own about close to 7,000 of those facilities. So it really is the backbone of the association. It's a lot of, you know, mom and pops. Some people are maybe have multiple facilities, but in states like Kansas and Iowa, Nebraska, you may have a facility that has 40 or 50 beds, and it may be the main employer in that small town. You know, in many cases, in fact, independent owners probably exist, have facilities in just about every congressional district in the country. And the hard thing is, is that for independent owners to get them more involved on a national level, because they're working their facilities, you know, they're serving meals, they're taking care of problems, they're dealing with residents. The ones that do get involved, it's a very, very important thing. And I found that my years on the Independent Owners Council and now on the board, the voice of independent owners are very clearly heard by ACA and clearly heard at times by Congress. I don't remember in my interview with Mark Parkinson if I asked this live while we were recording or if I asked him offline, but I'll ask you because you might have a different take. Given that healthcare and even more so long-term care is not 100% a partisan issue. It's complex. It's hard for Republicans and Democrats to understand. Does that make it easier for you in terms of advocacy because they don't really understand and you're the educator and the advocate? Or is it actually harder because you can't get anyone to understand and agree and put their foot in the sand where they want to be? The answer is yes to both questions. It does make it easier because I remember a number of years ago being before the state legislature on testifying. One of the assemblymen said, we don't really understand what you do. But yet it is a partisan issue to some degree because Democrats like more regulation and Republicans don't. Democrats are a little freer with the money, not as free as we need them to be. And Republicans are a little more budget conscious. But when it comes down to it, the story we have to tell very simply is that to fulfill our mission, we need to be reimbursed appropriately. And, and what happens, especially on the Medicaid side around the country, and most of the residents of facilities are Medicaid residents, there's a shortfall in almost every state on the, between the reimbursement and the cost. And that was exacerbated to a great degree by in the pandemic. And we had some help from the federal government. Some states got more help than others from the states. But we're going into a period where prices rise. We need the help you know, from that perspective. And And the Medicaid battle, I think, is going to be fought not only in the federal level, but also in the state level. And it's very hard for them to understand not only what we do, how important it is. And I think after a while, they do understand that. But the next step is there's advocates that believe there's a lot of well-to-do owners who are making loads and loads of money when that really is not the case. MedPAC itself has shown our margins are less than 1%, even when you look at the Medicare portion of it. And a lot of facilities around the country don't even have a high Medicare portion, and it's mostly Medicaid. And I know there's states like Montana right now that's had a number of significant number of closures relative to their size of the state because facilities just can't make a go of it just on Medicaid revenue alone. So that's the battle we're going to continue to fight. And it's our hope that the government, both on a federal and state level, will understand the importance of what we do and the importance of funding that for the residents and patients that we serve. I got a question for you about 
I'm going to take you back 12 years ago or 13 years ago, right when you were starting to get into your role at the national level as an advocate. What was the biggest learning curve for you? Was it about the complexity of our government? Was it about how do we explain it? Was it about talking to your members and translating what you're running to at Congress and making sure, hey, like, hey, this is slow. I need you guys to buy in on this. Walk me through if you can remember those days. I do remember the days and I I come from a legal background. When you look at it, a lot of people in our business, they're very focused on taking care of people and they get very frustrated when they say, why isn't anybody listening to us? So one of my challenges, I think, when I started 12 years ago up until today is getting our members to really understand that they do have a voice and that our legislators are the ones that are going to make those decisions for us. And that the more they know about our facilities, whether it's getting them to visit our facilities to see what we do, getting them to understand the, how important we are, not just in, in the medical side and the health and the care side, but also as employers and districts, that we need the attention that others get. And that a lot of what advocates push is based upon really a more perception than it is the reality. So the challenge is getting independent owners and getting all owners, for that matter, to get our legislators to come into the facilities and see what we do. And my experience has been every time we bring somebody into a facility, their eyes get widened and they say, oh, wow, now I understand what you do. I mean, seeing, you know, having somebody who we depend on for reimbursement, look at a CNA taking care of somebody and look at how the resident looks at that CNA or the nurse really tells a story much better than we can do with our suits as we go to the halls of Congress or the state legislatures. So I think that's been the biggest challenge is getting people to get more involved. But recently, we've had the opportunity to get people involved. I know one of the things with the recent situation with our payment rule, we got, I think Mark says the number over and over again, I don't remember, it's over 6,000 letters were sent to CMS about that. So I think it's when we're able to get people mobilized from that perspective and we get the attention of CMS or get the attention of Congress, it does help us a lot. But that's the biggest challenge because as people are working daily, getting them to write letters, getting their staff to write letters, it's not an easy thing. If you had a new member or a new or a member who's recently becoming active in ACA, And they came up to you and you said, you know, nothing ever gets done at the national level. I don't really see any advocacy. And they were asking for your honest opinion. Like, can you share a win that you feel long-term care has had in the last 12 years? What comes to mind? And maybe it's just a change of perception. Maybe it's not a bill. Maybe it's not about finance. Maybe it's not about COVID. What comes and feels like, hey, stick with us. We're headed in the right direction. Well, there's been some recent ones. I just mentioned about the payment rule. Originally, we were supposed to get a 2% cut, and we actually wound up with just about a 2% increase, which for small facilities in particular, that's a major, major thing. The other thing that was during COVID, our ability to get the attention of CMS and how the funds were distributed, the provider relief funds and others were distributed to be able to help facilities when they needed it most. I mean, the other thing is the perception. I think that as you look at some surveys we've done, the perception in the general public of our services has improved over the last several years as we've been outside, out more with public relations and getting that story out. There's a recent story in Axios, I think a couple of days ago, where it really recognized what we do, what we need. And those are things that we we didn't see 10, 15 years ago. 
feel I normally go when I start off an interview, I go right into the personal story, but I was, you know, interested kind of in that the advocacy level. But tell me how you got into long term care. And then also, as you transition, tell me a little bit about Bartley and how big you are, where you're at. Okay, well, let me start how I got involved in long term care. I am attorney by training, still am an attorney. And I was with a firm in Bergen County, New Jersey, that represented Hackensack Hospital, which is now a big system called Hackensack Meridian. And my mentor in that firm was the chairman of the board. So I got to learn a little bit about healthcare there. And my first involvement in long-term care was actually representing a bunch of savings and loans who were foreclosing on a nursing home or series of nursing homes. So I got to understand a little bit about that. And I had clients who were physicians in central Jersey who were looking to were not happy with the options available for their patients that were aging and decided that they wanted to try to build a nursing home. And I consulted with them and through a series of work because of my ability to get financing and other things, I became the managing partner of that entity. And as time as we grew, I did less law and became the CEO. And so we grew into a rehab facilities grew, we grew into assisted living. And most recently, we've merged with another company run by some young guys, the next generation that's bringing up. And we'll be to the point where we have about eight facilities in New Jersey, two facilities in Michigan, and looking at some others. But our Bartley story is, is kind of interesting. I was always kidded by a lot of people because I worked and tried to make Bartley be the very sophisticated mom and pop from that perspective. I tried to stay involved in everything that was going on. Some of my colleagues would refer to it as Bartley World because I would go against the grain sometimes because for me, the most important thing was that we were treating all of our residents and our staff as if they were family. And that wasn't always the best thing for the bottom line. But as I used to tell people when I was CEO, the CEO stood for customers, employees, and owners in that order. And we followed that prospect and that process for many years and had a great reputation, still have a great reputation, five-star facility. And it's a place to go. We're, uh, we're considered one of the leaders in New Jersey, and we're hoping with this merger that we continue to have that process going forward. I feel like anyone who knows me would know my very next question is, what was your learning curve moving from legal field over to CEO? There are some emotional, intangible challenges of that framework. I want to know, like, whose door did you knock on? What books were you reading? And what advice would you give younger Phil, if knowing what you know now? Well, I had to learn it from the top down, which is a hard way to do that. And I had the advantage, really. I mean, mom and dad were very hardworking people. In fact, I'm the first in my family, both my immediate and my extended family, to get a college degree and get a you know, professional degree. So I knew what it was like to work, you know, nine to five or in cases I worked in warehouses and all when I was growing up. So from that perspective, I always focused on the people who are doing the work. Those are the most important people to me, the CNAs, the nurses, people in the kitchen. I tried to learn by being with them and understanding their needs. The situation of going from, a, from being a lawyer to being a CEO of a healthcare company, there were so many regulations in healthcare. I think it made it a lot easier for me when I was dealing with surveyors and dealing with regulators because I could speak their language. And if I had to deal with the state of New Jersey Department of Health on something, I felt I had an advantage because I knew the regulations better than they knew. So from that perspective, it was easier. But from the perspective of operations, if I had to give myself advice from 20 years ago, I would say, be certified as a nurse's aide and then get your nursing home license. And then, and so that people would understand you actually do know what you're talking about. But it's been a great thing. 
I'm involved at Rutgers University and every year they have a thing called Night of Networking where they bring in athletes, sort of like a speed dating kind of thing to get to meet people for getting jobs after their athletic careers. And sometimes I'd be posted for being a lawyer, sometimes as a CEO in healthcare. And when they would, I would tell the story, a lot of them would look at me saying, you went from like all those cool things you did as a lawyer to work in a nursing home? I don't understand that. And I explained to them, I said, it's part of the passion. I said, as a lawyer, I was always energized by the fact that I was representing a client. And I wouldn't always like the clients I represented. And so I would come home at night. I may have won, but it may have not been one of those satisfying wins. But in healthcare, I know every day that I come home, I've made a difference in somebody's life. And that's the kind of thing that we've done in our company is the fact that at the entrances to our facilities is a sign that says, make a difference today. So from that perspective, I've learned that and it's been much more rewarding, I think, than practicing law. Although I just seem to never get out of the practice of law because even in a board meeting, I'm referred to as the attorney. Mark Mark's an attorney too. So we always have people look to us on some issues. But from the perspective of my career, if somebody had asked me when I was getting out of high school, college, or law school, what I would be doing today would not be sitting here talking to you about long-term care. I... I appreciate you saying kind of the advice of going back to becoming a CNA. I became a CNA a little over a year and a half ago. And I came in a long-term care as a marketer, then podcaster. And going to become a CNA really helped me understand a lot better. My follow-up question for you about, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I hear is that when you got into long-term care and got into healthcare, there was something intangible and rewarding about knowing that you were improving people's life that you definitely cared about. I wonder how you, guess I'm looking for an example of how do you make sure you're still hearing the stories and you're getting that rewarding feeling of making sure that trickles up and you actually know that the way that you run the company is making a difference. Do you have a way of shout outs? How do you keep your ear to the ground? Okay, confession time. Yes, I host the LTC Heroes podcast, and hopefully you know that by now, but I can't take all the credit. Jason Long, the CEO of Experience Care, told me two years ago that when we started this show, that this new audio platform had to create value for everyone, whether you're a client of Experience Care, EHR, or not. Then he encouraged me to become a CNA to really help LTC Heroes resonate with caregivers and leaders. And between you and me, he really knew what he was talking about. LTC Heroes has been invited to almost 10 conventions in 2022 to finally shine a light on what leaders like you have been doing for decades. It's that sort of knowledge of the industry that really makes me appreciate Experience Care, which has developed a customizable and intuitive EHR that makes clinical financial and billing processes more efficient and accurate. It transforms workflows into something that makes sense so you can focus on what really matters, caring for your residents. The software is used by ALFs, SNFs, CCRCs, big and small facilities alike. Countless users have reached out and shared with me that it really is effective in helping them improve outcomes. I can honestly say that I know my grandparents would be proud to learn that I work at a place like at Experience Care. And I just wanted to take the time to thank Experience Care for sponsoring this podcast. Check out their latest products at www.experience.care. Well, it gets harder as you sort of move up the ladder. And the way I keep my ear to the ground is people know what's expected of them, know our process, know our culture. And what I've done over the years, for instance, I have these president's lunches where I want to meet with the CNAs or the nurses and do things like that. 
one of the things they instituted a number of years ago was rehire interviews. And we have that go down through the company. And rehire interview is coming out of an article I read that said that if you have people working for you, you wouldn't hire today. That's a problem. And if people are working with you that really would look for a job elsewhere, that's a problem. So I would sit down with the managers and we'd go over that once a year of, well, why do you want to work here and why should I hire you? And it was also go through things like, what are your accomplishments? What are your expectations? And I found it was a way to keep in touch from that perspective. And ultimately, the best way to do it is just to walk around and see what's going on. I know I've said over and over again, one of the best things that I could hear from a CNA or a nurse is something along the lines of the following. I don't know if you know this is happening, but I, if you did, you wouldn't like it, which tells me that they know what's expected and they know that quality. And I think during the pandemic, we had one facility that was hit pretty hard. What I was amazed that I'm getting, you know, I get a little goosebumps even thinking about it right now is, is how the people just knew what to do instinctively. And when I announced that I was going to be sort of stepping back a little bit from operations a few months ago, I had one of the people ask me, now that you're not going to be my direct boss any longer, I can ask you this question. How did you know what to do during our COVID? And I said, well, now that I'm not, I don't have to be your boss anymore on a detailed basis, I can tell you the truth. I didn't really know what to do. I took the facts in place and I relied on all of you and your caring to get us through it. And she looked at me like, oh, somehow it's, you mean that we're that important? I said, I've been telling you that for years. You are what makes this company go. I love that story. And my guess is that people who would listen to this interview start off, we started, you know, vice chair, then we go to legal, we go to CEO. People might not imagine that you're passionate about culture. And I was going through the notes from the pre-interview that you did with my co-host, Victoria. You talked about, I think, something about a bracelet or about a mission. Can you talk to me a little bit about how important culture is and if you have some examples of why it's kind of in your DNA? A number of years ago, I read a book about the Disney principles because I was always fascinated by how, how Disney makes this magic where they somehow get you to go to Disney World in August, wait in line for two hours and think it's the most wonderful experience in the world. So I likened it to some degree to what we do in healthcare. So I did some analysis, had went to some courses and whatnot. And we really looked at our mission about where we were with our mission, vision, and our core values. And we came up with core values that we call them attire. I don't know if you can see this. It says, well, it's backwards here on the screen, but A-T-T-I-R-E, which stands for attitude, teamwork, trust, integrity, respect, and excellence. And everything we do revolves around that. And then the other thing on the bracelet is this thing called pride, personal responsibility in delivering excellence. You know, we give these bracelets out. We have our staff wear these. And, you know, it's a way for us as uh, management and it's a way for people to look back and say, you know, why am I here? And it's all about the individual. You know, the Disney principles, we look, one of the ones that we emphasized a lot was everyone and everything makes a difference. And, you know, so from that perspective, it's just really a matter of paying attention to that process and realizing that no matter what's going on in the world, we have people that do great things in our facilities, and we try to encourage them to, when you come in that facility, it's that one time and that one period of your day where you know you're going to do great things for people, no matter what's happening on the outside, whether your kids are a mess, you have an argument with your husband or your wife, 
whether you just had a car accident, no matter what happens for that eight, 10, 12 hours, whatever your shift is, you have an opportunity to make a difference and to do some great things. And to really, it's like a great relief. And I've always stressed that. And I think it was something, again, during the pandemic, I was just amazed as I'd walk in the facilities and they would try to keep me out of certain units where COVID was, because I'm one of those old guys they have to worry about, how people just understood it was all about caring and how they got together and said, this is not working for us. How can we change it? Sort of the thing where we're so highly regulated, we often have to look at what's the right thing to do as opposed to what's the thing that the government wants us to do. And there's sometimes a battle with that. And I've always taken the approach in our facilities that our standards should be free of deficient practices. If there's a subjective deficiency, I'll deal with that and I'll use my legal skills to advocate for our facilities and our team. And I said to a surveyor one time who was criticizing with something done by your CNA, I said, you know, you weren't there. You're reading things on a record. How would you feel about going up to the CNA and tell them, you know, 12 months ago, you did a really lousy job on this thing, I think based upon what I'm reading. And without even talking to the CNA, you may or may not remember what happened. I said, you know, it's all about the people. And if we don't understand that it's people taking care of people and the regulators just look at something that's, you know, a record, it's not what we're about. And that's one of our big frustrations, but it's also one of our strengths. So I don't know if I answered your question. I got on a little tangent there, but. I think you did. And I like tangents. I would consider myself, I guess I don't know how to say, I think tangents are contagious because I learn a lot about you and kind of how you process things. So that leads me into my next question is, where do you, because it sounds like you're an avid, you're a perpetual learner, sounds like you're an avid reader, both of which I am as well. What are some examples of things where you have learned about working in long-term care or running a long-term care organization that might not be in a business book? And I'll let you ponder on that as I give some examples. I've often found that I learn about how to run my company or how to run my team from self-help books. Like there's a book called The Five Languages of Love that's taught me so much about how to motivate people. Or there's a book from a hospice nurse in Australia called The Regrets of the Dead and Dying that I've learned a lot about who I want to be as a dad, but I don't think it was trying to teach me about who I am as a dad. Do you have any examples of where you've picked up little nuggets, kind of like the Disney story? the way you are as a leader, your leadership style? Disney is one. The other thing that being a former athlete, or I still consider myself an athlete, although not at the level I used to be, but I look to coaching and things like that, you know, as somewhat of an inspiration, somewhat of a lesson, the ability to get people to understand that. In fact, my son, I used to have a sign in my son's room when he was an athlete that said a thousand hours of preparation for that one moment. So from my perspective, it's all about the process and books about process that I usually refer back to, to sports analogies. And I'm always reminded by our team, a lot of people don't get the sports analogies. So I try to work around that. But I give you an example. You know, there's a skier who didn't do too well in the recent Olympics, but she was a multi-time world champion. And they asked her at one point in time in her career, you know, how do you stay on focus? And she said, it's all about the process. If I think about the outcome, I think about the goals while I'm going through the process, I'm not going to get there. So for me, things like that and books where it says, where I've read over the years where, or articles I've read, where it says, take a step back and, and look at yourself. In one particular, I can't remember the full nature of the poem, but it's called Man in the Glass. 
I was aware of the poem. And then a number of years ago, when Bill Parcells, one of his many retirements from uh, as a football coach, read that. And basically, Glass says, all that matters in life when you look at it is the person who you're seeing in the mirror. Don't believe your press clippings. Don't believe your criticism. But be honest with yourself. And I think that's been an important thing for me and a message that I've tried to get to people because uh, I'm not a big one on titles. I know Mark told you a story and I had a similar thing where he was, I think he said he was planting flowers and doing a few things around one of his facilities and somebody wanted to make him the employee of the month. And I've had a similar experience. And I think that best compliment that I could ever get is that people feel comfortable talking to me. You know, the staff feels comfortable talking to me and tell me what's going on. And they feel like I care about what they're doing. And I think that ultimately, that's what I get out of a lot of that. Now, from a business perspective and marketing perspective, one of the books that actually influenced me a lot was a book called Collapse of Distinction, you know, and how do we get our message out there? And that book, you know, deals with when you're producing a product that's just like everyone else, when you're in a market where you can't, you know, price, price is not going to be a factor. How do you distinguish your services or your company from others? And it really is all about the quality aspect. But yet, if you say to in, in our business, we're all about quality, well, everybody's going to say that. And really what you do is you, you look deep in and say, what makes us different? And how can we be different? How can we be better? And those are the kind of things that I've tried to bring into the company and basically bring into my life. And the following thing is, and the last thing I would say is perseverance. In our business, you have to persevere. I've always called it a pendulum. It swings wildly. And you sometimes have to duck and sometimes you have to grab onto that pendulum and see where it's going. But it's all about perseverance. And the books that I've read and the articles that I've read deal with that and how you get to a point where no matter what's happening, as bullets are flying around you figuratively, not literally, I guess in this our case, what do you do? Do you keep your head? You focus on where you're supposed to be. Do you focus on that process? And when you do, you usually get good results. And I think during the pandemic is a good example of that. We focused on the process process was how do we take care of people no matter what's happening. And that's how we got through it. I like the fact that you mentioned sports and kind of that competitive nature. Before I ask you the follow-up question about that is what sports did you play and what did your kids do in terms of sports? I was a football player and a wrestler. I'm now a avid skier and exercise and working out is a big thing for me. I do play golf. There's a lot of things in golf and business that are the same. Although in golf, I guess the best way to say it is every morning when I'm going to play golf, I think about my round and I always play much better when I'm thinking about it than when I actually go out on the course. So the skill factor is there, but those are the sports that I've done. I mean, the team sport, I was a baseball player also. My son was a fairly accomplished soccer player. And one of the reasons we're in Colorado right now is he became a ski racer and was fairly accomplished with that. And the interesting thing about that is he learned some of those lessons about process. And when he was applying to law school, he wrote an essay about comparing training and preparing for a ski race that one moment with doing trial work. And he's a trial attorney now in Denver. So I guess, you know, those kind of lessons and seeing me from all that time, you know, rubbed off on him a little bit. And then the sports for me becomes a very, very important way because that's how I grew up. I grew up with the concept of team, everybody doing their job. The glory of the team is more important than the glory of the individual. And yet I had the flip side of that with my wrestling career, where you have the aspect of team, but you're on that mat all by yourself. And if you're not prepared and you don't know what you're doing, you're going to lose. And sometimes even when you're prepared, know what you're doing, there's going to be somebody a little better than you. So every day you have to work to get a little bit better. 
I'm a believer in that concept of you work hard every day because that prepares you for the future and it makes you better and better every day. You know, that 1% improvement every day gets you to the point where you're doing what you need to be doing. I can appreciate now that I'm getting older and now that I'm dad, how you talked about the importance to appreciate the process. There's an exercise that I discovered in New York Times. I think it's called 36 Questions to Fall in Love. And they're kind of questions that you do back and forth with your partner or someone new. And one of the questions I remember answering, which is, what's one of the greatest accomplishments or one of the moments you felt the greatest? And I can remember when I answered that question to my wife, I said, it's when I broke my high school mile record and placed in state. And about two or three years ago, I ran an ultra marathon that lasted, I think it was 50 miles and it lasted like eight or nine hours. And as I was training, I told my wife, differently than when I ran track in high school, I was going to learn to appreciate the process. So that stayed ingrained with me. So I trained for about four months and never listened to headphones and trained on a track running a 400 meter track to run 50 miles and that I made myself learn the process. So thank you for sharing that because I can feel that in my soul. Well, I, I can see that with a smile on your face. And when I got out of law school to try to keep active with something, it was time when the big running boom was there. So I did run a few marathons myself. And one of the great accomplishments I had is I had read where the miler, famous miler, Marty LaCourie had, as he was covering the New York City Marathon, ran from the back and covered the marathon interviewing people. And in the process, set a world record for the most people passed in a race. So I decided my second time I was running it, that I was going to go from the a little further back and truly enjoy it. You know, with other accomplishments I have over the years, one of the ones I remember the most is actually passing five or six people in that last hundred yards of the New York City Marathon. I felt that was an accomplishment from, from that perspective. That's a great story. Phil, I really appreciate you joining me on LTC Heroes. It was great to get to know you and also, you know, allowing me to jump around from advocacy to legal to CEO and finishing up with books and marathons. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for all you're doing, for getting our message out. And thank you for your passion for what you do and for what we do. Appreciate it. I feel blessed that long-term care has changed kind of the way that I see the world. And I talked to a lot of leaders like you and I see how it's changed you all. And I think it's a contagious experience. And if we're going to combat the staffing crisis, we need to explain the intangibles and what's valuable and how rewarding it is and how it changes kind of our soul. And that's how we do it on the podcast. So thank you for being part of that message. Well, well said. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.